0: from KQED. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The parents of 545 children separated at the U.S.-Mexico border still can't be found. That's according to a filing this week from the American Civil Liberties Union. Many of these families were separated by the Trump administration in 2017 before it formalized its 2018 zero tolerance policy that led to the public outcry. Reunifications have been hampered by the administration's failure to ensure records linking parents with children. They've been further hampered by the pandemic. We get the latest on the effort to reunite families and look at the long-term impact of Trump's separation policy. We're joined by Gladys Molina Alt, child advocate program director at the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights. Thanks so much for joining us, Gladys Molina Alt. Thank you, Ina. Also with us is Michelle Wiley, a reporter for KQED who covers immigration. Michelle Wiley, thanks for being here as well. Thank you. So, Michelle, people are more familiar with the more than 2,800 families that were separated under the 2018 zero tolerance policy that a federal judge ordered must be reunified, and they were eventually tracked down in terms of parents and children. They may be less familiar with the separations that came to light later, the ones that began in in 2017. Can you talk about what happened to these families?
1: Sure. So, you know, like you said, a lot of people are familiar with uh, the family separations that took place and and really captured national media attention in the spring of 2018. But what came to light uh, and was confirmed by uh, an inspector general report from the Department of Health and Human Services in January of 2019 is that the separations actually began much earlier. Um, as far back as July of 2017, in what's often referred to as a pilot program that began in El Paso. And so the children and families that we're talking about right now with that number of 545, that's from that group of folks. And and what uh, advocates and lawyers have found is that for that group, They're often, the information, the contact information, it's much less uh, consistent. Uh, Often the information is outdated or incorrect. And then you'll also see um, many of the parents in that group were deported. So the reunification process is much more complicated and uh, difficult.
0: And then on top of that, we've learned that the federal government really neglected to link the children of their parents in these different databases, the databases for Homeland Security versus the databases for Health and Human Services, right? So that contributed to it.
1: Yeah, so in uh, November, October, November of 2019, that's when all of these lists, which were uh these intergovernmental lists they had been checked by you know the office of refugee resettlement dhhs um, customs and border protection uh they like you said they hadn't kept good tracks they had to confirm between these different government agencies what information was correct and what was incorrect so that these uh groups like the aclu and justice in motion could even begin the task of trying to find people and potentially reunify them. So they were only able really to get started in these efforts at the end of last year. And
0: when some of this information was available, was the Trump administration willing to give it over or did they fight that?
1: They fought that. It it was a a fairly lengthy court proceeding. Um, Like I said, the, uh, the report from the Office of the Inspector General came out in January 2019, but these lists were only fully delivered to the ACLU in the fall of 2019. So that's almost a year since the information was out and advocates on the ground had known also about these separations earlier. So it it's been a very long amount of time.
0: Gladys Molina Alt, your organization advocates for the children that were brought to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. I mean, can you talk about these longer term separations now since these would have been people in 2017 and and the effect on children
2: yeah you know the 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 effect on children has just been um, traumatic um the when when I think back about the children that were separated during 2018 it's children who were afraid once they, once the children were reunified we were seeing kids that were afraid to go to the store because of the impact of the forced separation had had on them. Um, and just the overall um, manner in which it was done sometimes was traumatic to kids. Uh, there were kids who were lied to, who were told that um, uh, they were going to a place but not being told that they were being separated from their parents. Um, so the impact on children has just been overall tra- traumatic from our point of view.
0: And as the younger the children are, I'm sure the harder it is to reunite them, not just because of the practicality of trying to get the information needed to try to link them with their parents, but also because my understanding is they've potentially formed bonds with the other adults who either took them in as fo- as foster children or potentially as family members or other sponsors, like family and friends, if they were able to locate those relatives uh, in the U.S. So that could also be a serious disruption as well?
2: Exactly, exactly. As we try to, you know, as parents um, and children are coming into contact after reunifications happened here in the United States, then there gets to a point where a child has to decide, like, do I go back to my parent? for whom I was separated or do I stay with the the sponsor that that got me out of custody whether that be an aunt or some other extended family member and and, and those are difficult decisions i think for kids to make um once that family separation has been done so the 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 difficulty for that child to make that choice and uh, also the fact that they are getting used to a, a, a new school, right? Like, or getting used to a school that was new to them, uh, used to uh, a new circle of friends, and all of that becomes a disruption in the child's life stemming from
0: that separation. You talked about, you know, the immediate impacts, and, and I'm wondering, what are the long-term psychological effects that you're most concerned with uh, with regard to these separations?
2: I think mostly it's a fear in children. It's a fear of law enforcement in a way too. Um, I remember talking to kiddos about their memories of that separation, and a lot of them referred to uh, uniforms. They remember uniforms. I think when you look at that moment of separation from, from a child, um, one of the things you're going to remember is somebody in a uniform tore me apart from somebody whom I love and protects me. So that's one impact that I see in in children. Um, And the other one, I think, is this feeling that somehow people don't care about the impact it has on them, that because they're immigrant children, that we perhaps don't think about their well-being and their long-term welfare. Um, in a way that is human.
0: The Department of Homeland Security has said that all of the 545 children that we're talking about were quote appropriately discharged. Does that mean that they were appropriately sort of sent to a family, extended family members, friends, or foster families? And how often would they have been sent to extended family? Do you know? Yeah, but by, by
2: proper discharge, I believe the Office of Refugee Resettlement means that they they either got sponsored out through their family reunification process that or are overseas or that they went on to um, an unaccompanied refugee minors program, which is kind of like a long term foster care uh, placement. Or that they were released um, to DHS for repatriation back um, back back to their country. Uh, that's that's what I, I believe or means by properly discharged. But in terms of family separation, it, what what I've seen over the years is that about eighty percent of kids that come into our custody end up being. Um, released by ORR into the care of an adult sponsor while the child undergoes their the removal proceedings in immigration court.
0: And are they often family, the adult?
2: Oftentimes they are. Okay. It could be um, family, immediate family or extended family.
0: And then the other thing that the White House has said is that when they have reached parents that they have declined to accept their children back in, in many cases. Can you talk about that? I mean, why would a parent decline to accept their child back? What are the conditions that the U.S. is putting on this arrangement?
2: What I what I can imagine, Mina, is perhaps the parent is n- uh, not in a position to receive the, the, the child um, based on the parent's circumstances. Um, I can imagine that you know that they they might be. Uh, the inability to um, sometimes provide basic um, basic education to a child, perhaps. Um, but I also think that going back to what we had said earlier is if a child has been apart from the parent and has established a bond with a sponsor or a foster family, you know, whatever placement they have, may have been able to go into, it, a parent is probably sitting with, the decision of whether they disrupt that,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and what the child's wishes might be given given the, the new arrangement. Michelle
0: Wiley, thank you, Michelle Wiley. What have you learned also about why some parents in some cases would not accept their children back?
1: Well, I think it's important to remember, and I think Gladys can speak to this as well. The conditions for which many of these parents travel to the U.S. Um, they're often were situations of great duress at home they were you know it wasn't an easy journey and and so they left for a very you know specific and personal reason and i think that when parents are asked like if you know when they're able to be reached do you want to be reunified there's an aspect of it that's you know they wanted their child to be able to have a better life in the u.s and is having them returned back to where they were trying to flee really the best decision for them and I think it's also that you know a lot of parents have been through what what I spoke to with some advocates was you know they've been through really difficult and harmful interactions with the U.S. government, and so there's a big trust deficit there. And so a lot of people are having trouble believing that they'll be, that reunification is even possible. So I think that's another hurdle that we need to think about when we're, when we're discussing this process.
0: Yes, I, I remember the ACLU saying that really the solution is for the Trump administration to allow the parents to return to the U.S. to reunite with their children and figure out where they want to go from there, but it sounds like that's not something that the u.s of course is making an option at this point let better yeah, add to
2: that mean at that yes Gladys, please it's it, 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 it's so true it, especially when the parents are seeing what is happening to to unaccompanied children coming to the border right now or other other asylum seekers is what they're seeing is is probably uh, a rejection it's probably punishment it's um it's disregard. For, for immigrants' rights. So that's what they're seeing. And, and they're not going to perhaps believe anything that some, someone tells them about reunifying with their child or that, that someone's going to be acting out of goodwill um, in whatever the government may be presenting to them.
0: We're talking with Gladys Molina-Alt, a child advocate and program director at the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, and Michelle Wiley, a reporter for KQED who covers immigration. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions, reactions, experiences as you listen to this conversation about forced family separations and the very difficult effort to reunify them The phone number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Karen in Oakland. Hi, Karen.
1: Hi. Um, I would like to make a comment that I think the euphemism forced family separations needs to be thrown away. And what has happened is not forced family separations. Kidnapping is the word that should be used. Kidnapping by Donald Trump and the people in the administration who were involved in this, like Stephen Miller and Kirsten Nielsen, whatever her last name is. These people kidnapped children from their parents. And kidnapping is a federal crime that requires imprisonment. We know who these people are. They should be in jail.
0: Karen, thanks for sharing that. I mean, Michelle Wiley, one of the things that became increasingly clear, of course, though initially the administration tried to deny it, is that they were doing this as a deterrence mechanism.
1: Right, yeah, that was something that has uh, become very clear um, in the, since the policy was enacted. So, I yeah, I think, you know, the, I, a question I hear often, you know, is where should we sort of focus Our frustration, or anger, or blame for this policy, and I think that if you're, you know, it's again, it's it's not the administration enacted the policy. They also uh, have not made a great deal of efforts to sort of uh, make reunification easy. So I think that that's something that a lot of advocates are asking for, you know, one way that you could help this process is by, like you said, allowing parents to reunify in the US, uh, compensating them, that's another thing that many advocates have talked about, but the the process thus far has been sort of all on the steering committee to do all the outreach and, and kind of rectify the situation.
0: Yes, and the fact that uh, they aren't being helpful in the process, that they have fought trying to give information that would have helped the process, and the fact that, as I mentioned earlier about the deterrence part of it coming more and more to light, you know, it underscores Karen's point where she's not alone here, where I where people feel like the cruelty of it was, in fact, the point. The point was to make it something that would stop people from trying to come to the border. And, uh, you know, Gladys Molina-Alt, so right now, what are the ways that you, as a child advocate, try to focus on helping children deal with the kinds of traumas that you described?
2: Well, part of what part of what we do is we advocate for children to receive the services that they need to, whether that be counseling, uh, whether we need to refer a kid out to a community partner to work with them, or the the, the sponsor that has them and their in their care. So that's in our role as child advocates, we we make recommendations and to. Stakeholders such as ORR, and we also work with, with the child after they get released from or custody to ensure that they get connected to services that are needed um, to to help them with the trauma. And if there is a parent that wishes to reunify with the child, then we also communicate with stakeholders such as the ACLU or KIND and other folks that are working on these types of cases to bring the child Together with the parent again.
0: And what do you find are the most effective ways to provide them with information to help them make sense of what's happened to them?
2: I mean, one one of the ways that we see as an effective way is to build rapport with them, to build a relationship of trust with the child so that when we make a referral for community services, they they follow through and they connect and really explain to them that the experience that they went through should not have happened to a child. And that if they feel certain feelings around it, that, that it's okay. And that it's okay to talk to somebody about it and process that. And they may not have those feelings right away. But if they come up, there's help for them.
0: Again, we're talking about how the parents of 545 children separated as long as three years ago by the U.S. government at the southern border, still have not been found. We're talking about efforts to reunite children separated from their parents with Gladys Molina-Alt of the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights and Michelle Wiley of KQED. We'll take more of your questions and comments after the break. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the separation of families at the southern border and the fact that 545 children are still unable to locate their parents. There are extremely difficult efforts underway to try to do so, but they're hampered in large part by the federal government and also by the pandemic. We're talking with Michelle Wiley, immigration reporter for KQED, and Gladys Molina-Alt with the Young Center, a child advocate. And you, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call at KQED Forum is how you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook. Email us at forum at kqed.org. Jennifer writes, if the goal of this separation policy was to deter parents from coming here, why did they keep it a secret during this pilot program? Any reaction to that, Michelle Wiley.
1: I think that's a good question and and one that I would also like to know the answer to. I I, I you know, I wish I could provide more insight on that, but I think there's just a lot that we don't know, frankly.
0: Well, Michael tweets, my understanding is that the bulk of those parents were deported. And that is what you also heard, Michelle Wiley. Michael writes, should the children here in, in the care of relatives or foster parents be likewise deported?
1: Well, I, I think that was that sort of touches on what we were speaking about before, about the considerations of, of what that could mean for both the children and the parents. Um, I think that uh, you know the legal situation for each parent is different based on the conditions of why they were deported and when. So some of them may be able to reapply for asylum in the US. Some may be able to apply for asylum in other places. I don't think that deporting the children is necessarily the right step. I think that there's, and, and I'm sure Gladys can speak more to this, there's uh, each situation is unique. And I don't think we should you know, paint it with a broad brush.
0: The listener writes, anyone who's a parent or remotely cares about kids should be outraged. We're talking about children and families. They look like me and my kids. I haven't even spent a night away except when I was in the hospital to deliver the second. The cruelty of these policies is beyond what I can comprehend. We're joined now by Kathleen Karen, founder and executive director of Justice in Motion. Kathleen Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first, can you talk about the role justice in motion plays in trying to reunite families and trying to find the parents of these children?
3: Sure. So, Justice in Motion, we're part of the ACLU effort to find and reunify these families. We get assigned the what we call the unreachable parents, so the parents who have been deported and the government records are poor. There have been efforts by other partners on the steering committee through this lawsuit, which include the young children. Um, excuse me, which includes KIND, Kids in Needs of Defense, uh, Women's Refugee Commission, and Paul Weiss. When they reach a dead end or unable to find the parents, they're deemed unreachable and they're assigned to justice in motion.
0: And so can you talk about what, what the work involves to try to find some of these parents?
3: So, the Justice Emotion Defender Network that we operate is um, about 46 human rights organizations and human rights lawyers that we collaborate and partner with in uh, Mexico and Central America. Specifically for family reunification, we're focusing on Central America. So we um, provide the information to the defenders who are seasoned human rights lawyers who are from these communities that understand you know, how they work and, and speak the local languages when there's some Mayan languages involved in Guatemala. Guatemala. Guatemala, especially. And it's arduous work. They're going through government records. They are traveling many hours, knocking on doors, literally searching for these parents.
0: And yes, as you say, with very sparse information, and Michelle Wiley was mentioning that it's also even when they do find them hard for some parents who've lived for so long without their kids, to trust the defenders who are coming to them, that they will actually reunite their kids, or that there will really be any any long-term resolution to what they're going through, what do they do in those types of situations?
3: It's a matter of building up trust with the parents. Um, It's understandable that the parents feel deceived and abandoned and are deeply traumatized. So it's the skillful work of the Defender Network to explain to the parents how this is going to go down and that there really could be a solution to their problem.
0: Well, let me go to caller Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Join us. Hi, Phil, are you there? And it looks like we lost Phil, though. I think Phil's question was why the government is doing this reunification. Why isn't the government doing this reunification work? Why does it fall to so many nonprofit organizations? Kathleen, Karen.
3: So the government spent a lot of time carefully thinking about how to separate the families they put no time or effort or thought or even had a plan of how to reuni- reunify the families. So they never intended for these families to be reunified. They thought this would be a successful deterrent to migration by ripping children away from their parents. The issue is, it is not a deterrent to, to migration. The issue, the problems are that the countries of origin are in very difficult situations, and the administration has essentially abandoned supporting efforts to make migration, not force, from the area. So the rule of law is very much in question in Central America. People simply can't stay. So they're faced with these horrible choices and risky, risky moves by moving to the United States to protect to, to protect their kids. But that's why they went in the first place.
0: And I do believe we have Phil back with us. Uh, Phil, in Burlingame, are you there? Area. And I guess we do not. Uh, let me go. I can you hear me? I can now. Did that answer your question, Phil, Phil about the NGOs or did you have a follow up?
3: Um, well, the follow up is the government created the harm and um, these uh, NGOs are kindly making whole. So the government has financial responsibilities. They were explaining very expensive, extensive methods required. Um, you know, what is the liability? And, you know, can't they get some traction against the government on that um,
2: front?
0: Phil, thanks. And and similarly, Susan writes, we're morally obliged as a country to create a fund to deal with the mental health needs of this group of children and many others. Kathleen, Karen, do you have any thoughts on what Phil is saying or do you know of any movement around that? Right,
3: the, that's, that is true. They created the harm and they should do something to help these families. These families are deeply traumatized and it's not gonna go away. Even if the families are reunified, they're not magically healed. This is years and years of trauma that they have absorbed and going to deal with for many years in their life. So sure, Congress could pass a bill for to compensate these families. There's definitely ways the government could um, help these families recover from what they've suffered.
0: Well, Tina tweets, why would we make children decide who to go with? That shouldn't be a kid's decision, and it's wrong and unfair to ask them to make it. Only parents can make that decision. It will harm the kids even more to ask them to do that. Another trauma for them to carry. Gladys Molina, you mentioned that they do sometimes ask the kids in this situation. How often does that happen, and at what age?
2: It happens It happens fairly. In fact, in our work, when we weigh in on best interest. We also asked children for their wishes. And, uh, you know, we, we look at it is, is the child of, there isn't like a magic age. we look at the child's maturity and, um, and expression to, to, to weigh that into our best interest recommendations. But the reason why parents have to even talk to kids about that choice is going back to the situations that parents may be in. They, they may not be safe themselves in, in, in their country of origin. And it, perhaps it's the parent's way of making peace with the child being away from them, but safe, because the parent doesn't want to make that decision unilaterally by bringing the child back to a situation where the parent knows they're not going to be safe.
0: Andrea writes, did no one ever think to use wristbands, such as those used in hospitals, to identify parents and children? The wristbands could have had names and matching ID numbers. It wouldn't have been 100% effective, but it certainly would have given some help in identifying and reuniting families. Kathleen, Karen, can you talk about how the pandemic has affected Justice in Motion's efforts to find parents?
3: So we had to suspend the um, the on-the-ground searches in Central America in March due to the pandemic. We didn't restart them until late in the summer when defenders felt, um, although COVID is still very um, strong in Central America, that they still wanted to do the work because every day that a child has an uncertain future, they're damaged by that. So there's this, this incredible commitment to the work, dedication, and urgency to the work to find those parents and to help the parents figure out where their kids are and make the right decisions for their children.
0: And Michelle Wiley, do you want to add to that a little bit about just the effect that the pandemic has had, as I know you've also done reporting on this as well?
1: Sure. I spoke to one of the Justice in Motion defenders, Dora Malara, who's in Honduras, and she talked to me about, you know, some of the public health restrictions that are in place there has really limited, and, and I know Kathleen can speak more to this, has really limited the amount of time that defenders can go out just based on the way that people are restricted on movement because of the public health order. You know, the, it's difficult to travel far because uh, they can't really stay overnight in a place that's not their home. Um, and. I mean, also just building on that, the, the trust issues that already would have existed are now in the context of a pandemic. So I think that you know, the defenders like, like Kathleen spoke to, you know, they're very seasoned professionals and, and they are working diligently to, to get people reunified but it's just a, this creates an even more difficult situation.
0: Bill asks: Is the federal government helping to fund the organizations trying to remedy the situation? Gladys Molina Alt. I know that the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights works with the Office of Refugee Resettlement. How much of your budget is government support? Is federal support?
2: Um, I, it's about a third of forty percent of our budget, but it's not funding that is given to us for the purpose of uh, undoing this harm. Yes. It's for the purpose of being appointed to children uh, as child advocates, mm-hmm. and that includes children that um that that have not been separated from family.
0: Right. Um, that was my next question: whether or not okay of that budget, right? Are, are they actually putting monies towards specifically your efforts to try to advocate for the children who are separated and reunite? Yeah, with their but,
2: to, but to echo Kathleen, I do agree that the the consideration of providing families with resources. And and, and assistance and support because of the trauma that we caused due to this policy is is key. A a caller had asked earlier why it was kept a secret and it was kept a secret, I, I believe, because it is such an awful thing to do to a child, to separate a child from their parents that they knew the public outcry would be would be loud as it was.
0: And again, Gloria Molina, Gladys Molina-Alt is with the Young Center um, and a child advocate and a program director there. The Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights. Michelle Wiley is a reporter for KQED. Kathleen Karen, founder and executive director of Justice in Motion. We're talking about how the parents of 545 children separated as long as three years ago still have not been found. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Robin writes, there was a report a couple months ago about housing children of refugees. The reporter noted that there were dirty diapers in the hallways and no one seemed to be in charge. Can you say more about this situation? Uh, Gladys Molina-Alt, I know that there have been reports about some continuing very unsanitary situations potentially in different detention centers. But I think also what Robin's point brings up is, what do we know about what's happening at the southern border now, especially with the way that the Trump administration has essentially sealed it and isn't taking any more refugees?
2: Well, what we do know about the southern border is that asylum seekers aren't being processed. They're being sent back to Mexico. We do know that the government is uh, illegally uh, removing or expelling uh, unaccompanied children that should be allowed to enter the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, and we do know that the government continues to find ways to separate families uh, through through means like MPP. Uh, if, if, if the government isn't doing it actively, they're doing it by default by putting these policies in place that then force families um, to to, to separate. And we do know that they continue, despite federal district court orders, to prevent people from accessing the asylum system, whether they be adults or be it unaccompanied minors. That's what we do know about what's going on in the southern border.
0: So with these children, when they're expelled, Gladys Molina-Alt, I mean... is the government tracking them at all? Is the U.S. tracking them at all? Well, they ha- they, they
2: they they don't track them the, the way they don't track them. There, we've heard of of children being some, some kids that are not even Mexican nationals being turned over to Mexico. We've also heard of cases where the government takes unaccompanied minors and puts them on charter flights and deports them back to Central America. Uh, but in terms of tracking them, not I don't know for what means. The, government, the way the government is looking at it is we're going to expel them. They're not going to enter. They're not going to be put into the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement or have access to the immigration courts or the asylum office. So they're tracking their expulsions. But beyond that, I don't know that they're tracking anything
0: else. This listener writes, what are the ages of the kids? I heard some were actually babies. This is so sad and disturbing. I mean, Michelle Wiley, I'm not sure if she's referring to the 545 children who still, for whom their parents have still not been located, or more broadly, the, the thousands of children overall. But can you tell this listener about the ages? Because, yes, some were as young as four months, whether they were part of the 2018 zero tolerance policy or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I mean, I, th- I think you said it right there. There's, uh, that children have, you know, ACL- the ACLU Lawyer League Alert has said there were children as old as, you know, babies, toddlers who are being separated. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, there sort of was no discretion based on age uh, about that. You know, in the original separations that happened in 2018, the judge ordered that, children under five years of age be the first to be reunified and, and uh, has really pushed efforts on that. But I think, um, yeah, it's just really difficult to think about children that young being separated from their parents Sep- any, at any age, really, but especially so young.
0: Kathleen, Karen, once a parent is located, how often are they able to come to the U.S. to reunite with their kids? Or is it more frequently that they're asked if they want to have the child brought to them in their country?
3: Well, we had a case in January, we were able to successfully win the right to return of nine families. So that was through the ACLU Miss L lawsuit. So because many of these families are seeking asylum in the United States, but were unlawfully denied the ability to start the process at the border. So it's part of the the big lawsuit, the Miss L lawsuit. So having those families come back and, um, you know, witnessing that joy of reunification on U.S. soil was it was an incredible moment so there's other families out there like that and so we're still trying to work on that as well but they can't just come back I mean these parents have been deported so So it's not easy for them to return
0: yeah so it sounds like doing it on U.S. soil is extremely rare yes well it is unfortunately I can't thank you and your organization's efforts enough for the work that you're doing. Kathleen Karen, founder and executive director of Justice in Motion. Same to you, Gladys Molina-Alt, child advocate and program director at the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights. Thanks so much for talking with us.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Also, Michelle Wiley, immigration reporter for KQED. Thanks as well for your important reporting. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Also to Jamison Weiss and Judy Campbell for producing today's segments. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum.